Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We start today with the warning labels now proposed for ground beef in Canada. Imagine going to the grocery store, you're picking up some hamburger for your weekend barbecue, and there's a warning label slapped on there. This beef is bad for your health. This is a recommendation from Health Canada. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Jennifer Babcock. Jennifer is the Senior Manager of Government Relations for the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. That's the National Association represents cattle ranchers and beef producers in Canada. Jennifer, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, for sure. So I think this is one that's getting a lot of attention, especially this idea that you would go to the grocery store and buy a pound of hamburger is like one of the most common things you do in the in a, in a when you go shopping and suddenly there's a warning label on the your packet of hamburger really can you explain like what is health canada actually proposing here what how would this work yeah absolutely health canada is proposing to put a warning label on the front of the package of uh, of ground beef uh all other all other meats wouldn't have this on it but ground beef would it's one of the uh, it's one of the most affordable nutrient-dense proteins available. Just to put in per- into perspective the common sense side of it, if you go to the grocery store and ask your butcher to turn a roast into ground beef, on one side of the grinder you don't need the warning label. On the other side when it's grinded, uh, all of a sudden it's going to have a warning label on it. So it doesn't make sense to us. We are requesting Health Canada to, to change this proposal and, uh, and make sure that ground beef is exempt from their regulations. Okay, I, I think that really sums up the how crazy this is, in my opinion. But the problem is, like, why do they want to put a warning label on it? It's because of the saturated fat in ground beef, correct? Yeah, that's right. It's based yeah. on uh, Health Canada's. Their it's called their healthy eating strategy. They're proposing uh, labels for for various uh, nutrients. Uh, ground beef is caught in the high in saturated fat proposal, uh, and and in our in our minds, it doesn't make sense. The original intent of putting a front of pack label is to encourage Canadians, consumers to move away from highly processed foods. And yet here we have a affordable and accessible uh, nutrient-dense protein that's going to have that on it. Meanwhile, there's highly processed foods now that, that aren't having this warning label on it. You know, the, the processed uh, cookies like Chips Ahoy or those or those bear paws, and I know sometimes I, I buy those for my kid as a treat, but uh, here we have a, a, a Canadian staple in the diet with ground beef not having, uh, that would require a warning label. Uh, and to put in, into perspective how many Canadians buy this, approximately 90% of Canadians cook with ground beef on a weekly basis. So this really is a staple across the country. Right, and I'm taking a look at a statement from Health Canada explaining this program, and they say that it is meant to reduce health risks by providing Canadians with quick and easy-to-use information on foods that are high in saturated fat, but it also says sodium and sugar. So does that mean that there will also be warning labels on the front of a pack of cookies or you know, potato chips or junk food? Like you, you said, yeah, like it, you, okay, go ahead, Jennifer. Uh, sorry, yeah, it, it really depends on the on the composition of the product. Uh, Health Canada has put out uh, thresholds for those various, whether sodium, sugar, or saturated fats. And, and so it depends on the manufacturers, you know, can, can adapt some of those, uh, some of the composition to make products fall under thresholds so that they don't need, need to have that, uh, that warning label on it, where we look at ground beef being a single ingredient whole food, there is nothing that we can really do to change the composition of ground beef 
And just to clarify, too, for the listeners, it's only the high in saturated fat uh, piece that where ground beef is concerned. Uh, and and quite frankly, it it makes up less than five percent of the saturated fat that Canadians uh, have in their in their diet. Meanwhile, highly processed foods make forty four percent of the saturated fat in in Canadian diet. So we really think that this policy is going to mislead and and quite frankly confuse consumers in the grocery store. Speaking to Jennifer Babcock, Canadian Cattlemen's Association, about proposed warning labels on ground beef. What if you buy extra lean ground beef that's low in fat? Does it, would it still have the label on it? All categories of ground beef will have the warning label on it as currently oh. proposed. And we are really requesting uh, all the categories to, ha- to for an exemption across the board for uh, for ground beef. It's important to note that as uh, as people cook with product, it, it does lose some of its saturated fat too in the cooking process, depending on on how it's cooked, of course, with different methods. But uh, it, it's just really a, a policy that's misguided and and not based in science or uh, or common sense when it comes to the the ground beef side of things. Right. What are you hearing from cattle producers, beef producers across Canada in the aftermath of this? I mean, this has got to be a kick in the guts here. I'm sure the industry has gone through some tough times during COVID, like everyone else, and some of the economic storms we see out there, inflation, and now you got this coming at them. What are you hearing from your people? Yeah, uh, farmers and ranchers across the country are are not happy that's putting it quite mildly and we are working hard on behalf of uh, on behalf of the cattle farmers and ranchers to see this policy change uh, we we are in we are in discussion still with the government so it's it's not a regulation yet it's just proposed at this point and yeah. and uh, farmers and ranchers have joined us in uh, in a mobilization campaign to to reach out to their MPs and and we've seen a lot of a lot of farmers and ranchers write their their members of parliament as well as just Canadians because this, when it comes down to it the the economic impacts will will absolutely hit uh, farmers and ranchers but when we look in the grocery store at inflation and and food costs right now and just the affordability well ground beef is one of the most affordable nutrient dense proteins we need to make sure that it stays that way for Canadians. Right, and you already touched briefly on this, but let's talk a little bit about the the health ramifications of eating beef and eating ground meat. And you know, I'm a meat eater. I eat ground beef. My kids eat hamburgers, like most families do. Is it? What can you say about the health of consuming ground beef? Yeah, absolutely, and that's where I I, I mentioned about the misleading to consumers. So yeah. uh, while there is while there is saturated fat in in ground beef, of course, that it is packed full of nutrients. You know, uh, particularly iron, uh, vitamin B twelve, and zinc. And when we look at iron, it's currently a nutrient of concern for children and women. So all of a sudden, we're going to have a warning label on a product that really we should be encouraging uh, these demographics to eat. And Health Canada even has on their website, they recommend meat as one of the first foods that that children should eat just based on its, its iron and, and nutrients there. And I don't know about you, but I have a seven-year-old, and, and when I go to feed her, I'm not feeding her a, a bunch of ribeye steaks. It's, it's ground beef that, that's accessible for many families across the country. Right. Okay, so let's talk about the reaction now and what you would like to see from your associations. Your association is the major one representing cattle ranchers, beef producers in Canada. So what are you asking the government now to do on this? So we are asking the government to exempt ground beef from the from the front of package regulations based on it being a single ingredient whole food. And what we are asking Canadians, uh, farmers and ranchers, uh, anyone who eats this product or is just scratching their head right now at at this policy that's being proposed is to join our campaign. We uh, we have a website called Don't Label My Beef and I uh, don't label my beef.ca and I would encourage uh, everybody to go have a look at that and, and sign up and, and join us in making sure that government is hearing from voices from coast to coast. Yeah, and I know that coast to coast, I guess there is beef production across the country, right? But it's particularly large industry in Western Canada, correct? Like, I know Alberta's big, but, you know, British Columbia has got a big beef producing sector too, correct? 
It, absolutely correct. Yeah. yeah, I would. We have beef producers from from BC through to the Maritimes, and and BC uh, ranchers are, are working hard to to contribute to the Canadian uh, beef as well, and uh, and it'll impact. This regulation will absolutely have economic impacts for them as well. Yeah, and are you hearing from some? I've seen some provincial governments pushing back on this. I see Alberta is making it clear they're not happy with this. Are, are you, what are you hearing there? Are the provinces getting their backs up on this too? Yeah, we've uh, we're working with our provincial uh, provincial cattle associations to to communicate with uh, all provincial governments as well. Uh, and and some have done so publicly. Some are are working more in in the background. But uh, anyone that we bring this to really does scratch their head at, at why it's being forwarded, and and we haven't heard much opposition from anyone that we've spoken to on this across the country. All right, Jennifer, thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike, for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the final report into money laundering in British Columbia. This is the long-awaited report from Justice Austin Cullen released yesterday. It is 1,800 pages long. It follows a three-year-long public inquiry. The bottom line in this report, billions of dollars in criminal cash and dirty money flowed every year through BC casinos, real estate, luxury goods in the absence of effective federal law enforcement to monitor it and detect it and correct it. Have a listen to Austin Cullen, the commissioner, speaking yesterday. For too long, money laundering has been kept on the sidelines for police, for law enforcement, for regulators and for governments. Money laundering has rarely been given priority. Uh, too often, it has been largely ignored. Okay, well, it's not being ignored now after the release of this report. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Peter German, former RCMP uh, senior officer. He's the author of two earlier provincial government commissioned reports on money laundering in British Columbia. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Peter, thanks a lot for coming on this morning. A great pleasure, Mike. Great. Hey, Peter, Peter, what jumps out at you from this report yesterday? What, uh, what was top of mind for you as you went through it? Well, it is comprehensive, Mike, and it's hard-hitting. Uh, I was actually prepared to be disappointed, and I was prepared to be a certain, you know, defensive to a certain degree, having, you know, completed my reports a number of years ago. But I was really impressed. Now, it's 1,800 pages. I have not read it all. I've read the executive summary. And uh, Justice Cullen, you know, takes a very methodical approach he covers the waterfront so far, uh, so to speak, with, with money laundering. Uh, but he also takes uh, a hard uh, approach towards the federal government. He is hard-hitting, and uh, he doesn't pull punches. So it's, it's nice to see uh, what I would call an honest report uh, that really deals with the issue. Let's listen to another clip of the commissioner here, Austin Cullen. Here he is talking about the lack of will to do anything about this. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. I think there was a lack of will that um, that underlay uh, BCLC's um, approach to the, the question. Law enforcement and regulators will need to be focused and committed to change. Okay, covered some lot of ground there. He talked about law enforcement. He talked about regulators. He also talked about BCLC, which is the BC Lottery Corporation. Lack of will to do anything about this. Why was there a lack of will? Just because the money's flowing, so let it flow. Right. There's a lot of incentive to receive money. Uh, the money received from gaming was, as I understand it, the largest non-tax source of revenue for the federal government for the provincial government at one point. Um, so, you know, here lies the issue: the ca- the casinos uh, take up about 500 pages of the report. Um, he doesn't find corruption, and I'm not surprised by that. Uh, we don't have that overt corruption, but he, he essentially says that a number of people didn't look where they, they the, the signs were there, they should have inquired further. Um, and, and we know that uh, starting in 2017, the Attorney General, uh, David Eby, said, you know, I, I'm told there's a problem, I, I, we're going to look at it. So uh, we have political will at this point, I think, in our province. Um, a big issue, though, is 
this is not simply a BC problem. It's a Canada problem. It's an Ontario problem. I'm sitting in Ontario right now speaking at a, at a conference, a couple of conferences here on the same issue. So the, the question is, uh, will BC have to go alone on this? Or is there going to be a pan-Canadian approach, federal government engaged, other provinces such as Ontario? Speaking to Peter German about the report into money laundering released yesterday in British Columbia, I remember at the start of this whole thing, there was a lot of suspicion that criminal money laundering allowed to go unchecked in British Columbia was fueling sky-high unaffordable real estate prices in British Columbia. People are priced out of this market. You can't afford to buy a home in the province where you grew up. There were a lot of fingers pointed at money laundering as maybe a a key reason why. In this report yesterday, it indicates that money laundering not to blame for Vancouver's housing affordability crisis. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I I think what the Justice Cullen is saying is is that the issue of high prices is much more, uh, there are many factors uh, involved in it. And and I said the same thing in in Money Laundering, the part two of Dirty Money. However, there was a separate report commissioned um, by the Ministry of Finance that coincided with my second one. And it did find that the, you know, money laundering played a role in the increase in prices. So, um, I think Justice Cullen is basically saying, you know, it, it, it's just hard to put your finger on it. There is no question, and you can tell from his report, that he is concerned about the use of our real estate market in British Columbia by organized crime. And there's no question that dirty money went into the real estate market. The issue is, did it actually have play a factor in raising house prices? And, and I think the the other report that had looked at this um, said that in certain communities, certain areas of the Lower Mainland, yes, it was a contributing factor. Um, but, I, you know, Justice Cullen, I don't think, goes quite that far. I'll still have to read, read yeah. the 1,800 pages to be sure. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about who dealt this mess, who is responsible, and and why it happened. And you touched briefly on this a, a minute ago, Peter, that... There was an indication from the commissioner yesterday that this was not caused by corruption of high-ranking officials. I mean, certainly there's a lot of criticism in here aimed at the previous Liberal government, Premier, former Premier Christy Clark, some of her key cabinet ministers, saying they did not do enough to deal with this. But they also said that it wasn't because of corruption. Let's have a listen to commission counsel on this point. Patrick McGowan speaking yesterday. Have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. None of those failures were motivated by uh, the hope of personal, financial, political, or, or some other type of gain. Do you agree with that assessment that this is not down to corruption, but it's down to something else? I would say I don't disagree with that. Um, I didn't see overt corruption when I was doing my reviews, although that was not the focus of my work. It was not an investigation as such. So I'm not surprised that they didn't find it. Um, and I don't think uh, corruption, uh, that what we would define as corruption in our criminal code, I don't believe it played uh, a role here. So, yes, I, I guess in, I, I'm in agreement. Um, but, you know, corruption as a word, as a, a term of art, means a lot of things to a lot of people. And if you don't look at it in a legal sense, if you look at it as a term of art, a lot of people will say, well, you know, uh, when there's a conflict of interest, there's corruption. And, and, and so yeah. use of the word in that, in that context. Um, but I think we have to be careful. And, and the commission, I think, was pretty clear. There's no well, indication of the criminal code corruption. Well, if it's not corruption under the criminal code, then what was it? Was it turning a blind eye to it? Was it just flat out incompetence? Like, why do you think it happened? Well, I think, again, look at what Justice Cullen says. He, he does, as you have said, call out certain individuals for not doing enough, being aware yeah. of certain red flags, as I would put them, and, um, and not acting on those red flags. So, why would you not act on the red flags? Well, maybe you've got too many other things on your agenda. You don't see it as a high priority. Um, it's not convenient to deal with. I mean, there could be a lot of factors at play. Uh, but what he's basically saying is it wasn't done for personal gain uh, right. by individuals. 
Right. This report contains a long list of recommendations to clean this up. Vancouver has been called the money laundering capital of Canada, maybe even the world. Although, like you, as you pointed out earlier, it's happening in lots of different places. How can we shake that reputation? How can we fix this and clean it up, in your opinion? Right. Well, I, I think this commission is, is going a long way in doing that. And, and the fact that the province, I'm sure, will be taking the recommendations very seriously um, will we'll, we'll do a lot. Um, we're not ignoring the problem, and that is key. Now, there are, I suggest, other provinces that are ignoring the problem, and uh, they will now have to read this report and say, ooh, should we be doing something similar, or should we be looking in our backyard? And, of course, as Cullen says, the federal government really has to look seriously at his findings and say, okay, we, we should be stepping up our game yeah. a- as well. Yeah, it's really the the feds took a lot of heat in this report, and there's pressure on the federal government now to take action on this. Do you, last question for you, Peter. If we do crack down on this, if there's a significant crackdown, do you think it could potentially hurt businesses in British Columbia, you know, car dealerships, the real estate sector? Who knows? The whole economy. Could could the no, economy I mean, take a hit? No, I'd say the opposite. I would say it would help our economy. Uh, the last thing you want is to be singled out as a place for dirty money. I don't think that's good for business. At the end of the day, you, you want a level playing field for business. And, and that's really what Justice Cullen is, is trying to put together here. Uh, so at, at the end of the day, no, I think this is very positive, And I really hope that the federal government engages with British Columbia. And I, and I hope that other provinces such as Ontario take a serious and very close look at this as well. Peter German, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts on it. You're most welcome, Mike. All right, let's keep talking about the money laundering report out yesterday from the Cullen Commission. 1,800-page report, long list of recommendations here, identifying billions of dollars in criminal cash that sloshed through B.C. casinos and elsewhere. Let's check in with Stephanie Smith now, president of the BCGEU Union. A rep represents a lot of public sector workers in British Columbia, including workers in BC casinos. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Stephanie, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. What are your thoughts on the money laundering report that came out yesterday? Well, as you mentioned, it's over 1,800 plus pages, I think 100 plus recommendations. So we're still working our way through it. But, um, you know, at first blush, Mike, I think it's fair to say that, uh, well, maybe not surprised, uh, certainly, certainly disappointed that, um, you know, those who were in uh, power positions and could make decisions and could and should have done more um, didn't do so. Um, you know, our members were right to be raising the issues and the concerns that they were prior to 2018 about what they were seeing and experiencing. So um, there's a lot to work through, a, a lot to look at there, but, um, you know, I, clearly it does, in fact, reinforce what our members were saying all along. And what were they saying? Like, were the workers in BC casinos, they were seeing this, you know, these gangster rolls of cash coming through the wicket and they knew something was up? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in fact, um, the BCGU was one of the first voices that began to call for a commission and an inquiry into right. money laundering. Um, we, our campaign actually uh, was a bit broader, uh, obviously, because we wanted to see the connections between money laundering in casinos and with luxury item purchases, but its impact on the opioid crisis in this province, as well as housing affordability. Unfortunately, the commission's mandate wasn't quite that broad. Um, it was more focused on the casino industry and the, and the luxury item purchases uh, industry. But, um, you know, I, I know the casinos, their submission said, oh, yes, you know, we have whistleblower protection for our employees. But, you know, our, our members feel like that's the fox guarding the hen house. And they were absolutely terrified to come to their supervisors or their managers and report what they'd seen. And in fact, they were so scared that they decided they could not uh, in person testify in front of the commission and, and look to us as their union to be their voice there. So, um, you know, we need strong whistleblower protection that goes beyond public service and into the private sector to protect workers who need to report these things. 
Right. Some people did very bravely speak up, though, at the time, right, and did report some of this. Like, what are some? What have you heard from the members of your union? Like, what did they see, and what did they try? What did some of them try to report? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I want to give a shout out to, uh, you know, former BC GEU family member Maria Labine, uh, who upon retirement, you know, was a very pivotal, um, uh, witness at the commission. And I think her testimony reflected what we heard from our members, you know, seeing sort of organized groups of people, um, you know, large, large amounts of cash, um, you know, sort of unaccounted for, um, you know, exactly the sort of things that Muriel spoke about, um, people working in a very organized fashion, looking like they were reporting to other people who were not on the floor. They didn't gamble much themselves, but were always in the casinos. And so, you know, we heard those kinds of stories as well from our members. Right. And you talked about the whistleblower protections that you believe are required or need to be strengthened in British Columbia. Like you, you said that what some of the people were afraid, they, they saw this stuff going on. They knew there was something wrong, but a lot of them were just scared to say anything about it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So right now we have whistleblower legislation. Uh, This government introduced some and it's great, um, but it is for public service and public sector workers. It doesn't cover workers like casino workers or those who work in car dealerships, for example. Let's just use that. Um, It has been, or one of the recommendations in the report is to expand that to accountants and some other professions. But, you know, in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick here in Canada, they have over overarching whistleblower protection. So it means that people can raise concerns without fear of retribution, losing their jobs. That's, you know, it's a huge concern. But for workers in the casino industry, much of that fear also related to their own physical well-being, their own safety. Um, And, you know, again, around the world, there's good models of whistleblower legislation. So it's something that we're hoping the Attorney General will really look at um, because the most important thing and the lessons that we've learned through this process is we don't let it keep happening, and we right. definitely don't let it happen the way it did previously. Thank you for coming on this morning. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so very much for having me, Mike. All right. Let's talk about the continuing environmental blockades and roadblocks. It's happening again. Roads, highways, bridges getting blocked by people who are opposed to old-growth logging. And this is getting out of control now. People are getting hurt. On Monday, protesters opposed to old-growth logging in British Columbia blocked Highway 1, uh, leading to the Swartz Bay Ferry Terminal north of Victoria. Fourteen people were arrested, and this got hairy when some unhappy drivers got out of their vehicles confronted the protesters at one point a person who was perched on top of a ladder was blocking the highway he got ladder came crashing down this guy was injured have a listen one driver in particular took it upon himself to try and dismantle the blockade minutes later this and the person at the top of it hit about 20 feet just falls flat on the ground. He doesn't move after that. All right, let's discuss now with my guest. With more people starting to wonder if this is worth it, even people on the environmental movement saying this is not the way to change public opinion. Let's check in with Andrew Weaver now, former Green Party MLA at the legislature. He is the former leader of the BC Green Party. Very pleased to welcome him back. Andrew, thank you for coming on today. Andrew, I think you're on mute. You could press your mute button there. Can you hear me now? Uh, yes, I, of course I can. Uh, so only after two years of teaching via Zoom have I still forgotten. <laughs> okay. okay we, sad, actually. We've got you loud and clear. Andrew Weaver, you're a climate change scientist. I know you have concerns in that regard, but when you see these continuing protests, now people getting hurt, what goes through your mind? <clears throat> Not sure what their end goal is. Um, if it is climate change, is it the preservation of old growth? Is it? Uh, I'm not sure because I'm not sure they're taking steps to actually facilitate any change. Because uh, in my particular view, is what they're doing is they're alienating the middle, and it is the middle that you need to advance public policy. And we're seeing that, like on both sides of the political spectrum, we're seeing the 
uh, far right, the sort of free freedom convoy. I like to call them revenge of the trailer park boys. Uh, and on the other side you, aside, you have the kind of eco-socialist crowd, both of whom are shouting at each other, Nobody, of, none of whom are listening to each other, none of whom who actually have solutions to problems we're, we're, we're dealing with as broader society, and, and all of whom are actually turning off the average person for whom you need to bring with you in order to pass public policy. So, you know, they're not saving old growth, these protesters. If it, in my view, if actually what they're doing is they're muddying the waters, because I'm not even sure what the message is that they're trying to convey. Yeah, well, they have said that they're trying to ban all old growth logging in British Columbia and that they are taking drastic steps to achieve that goal because nothing else is, do, has do worked. Do they even it's, know what old growth is, Mike? Well, How you, many of them have actually been to old growth? Like, what is old growth? Like, this is the thing that I find quite remarkable, is we have a very large province. And what matters, of course, from the old growth perspective, from true, you know, hundreds of year old trees, is the biodiversity that we need to protect associated with those deep, very rich, biodiverse river valleys. That's the key issue. The waters are muddied with arguments about climate change that are not really relevant. <clears throat> The waters are muddied by, uh, particularly when we see a bunch of young, white, urban environmentalists descend upon the Pachidat community yeah. in what I can only describe as one of the most colonial acts of the modern modern BC history, and tell the Pachidat people what's good for them after we in British Columbia passed UNDRIP and, the, and recognized collectively the importance of Indigenous self-governance. So I just, I just like it, just makes me give my head a shake as to the state of society, because we have basically a, a, almost um, anarchy happening on the eco-socialist left, and a similar form of anarchy happening on the, you know, revenge of the Trailer Park Boys right. Why don't we just put them all in a ring together and let them shout at each other, and then just move on as broader society? The Patchydot First Nation that you mentioned are involved in logging on Vancouver Island, and. It's an important income stream for that community. And they're one of many First Nations that are involved in the logging business, and some of them are involved in old old growth logging. And we have seen hundreds of people arrested at that Ferry Creek blockade where the Pachidot First Nation are, are based. Do you think that, you know, quite often we will hear environmental protesters invoke the, the rights of Indigenous people and say that, by allowing this logging to continue, you're, you're you're somehow going against indigenous interests or indigenous rights. What do you say to that argument, especially when a lot of First Nations are actually involved in this business? Well, in fact, those words that we hear often coming from yet again um, well-meaning young urban environmentalists, uh, in my view, are hypocritical. Which patch of that are you are you listening to? The one that you that or, or two people who agree with you, or are you listening to the collective? I mean, it's very, very complex. This is not like I choose the patchy that person that says what I want to hear, and then that's the truth. There's there's hereditary uh, governance issues. There's elected Indian Act style governance issues. There's the fact that you have tribal councils, of which the patchy that I understand are not in, and John that tribal council. You have neighboring uh, indigenous communities like the Dididak. You have um, communities trying to get out of poverty who have been subject to oppression for many, many years. And we have a bunch of these well-meaning urban environmentalists truck up there and, 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 and pit indigenous person against indigenous person. I mean, it, it is yeah. almost the definition of colonialism, Mike. How do you advance the cause of reform for climate change? I, give, I, I take your point that these type of protests are counterproductive and maybe actually turn back the cause that they're they're fighting for but you're a guy who you're a climate change scientist you've written books about it you've been part of the UN intergovernmental panel on climate change what is your opinion on how climate change should be confronted in a in a it, this is uh, as you know I've been on your show for years and as you know, I grew up in Victoria. I've been at UVic since 1992, saying the same thing along with the rest of my scientific community. Climate, before most of these protesters were actually even born, um, climate change is a very, very serious issue. It is not an issue where you wake up one morning and the world is over. I'm sorry, but we cannot keep the world to 1.5 degrees. Let's 
realize that and move on. And the reason why is very simple. Like if we immediately today, everywhere in the world, stopped burning all fossil fuels, we would, in a matter of a few years, raise global temperatures by 0.6 degrees. Because we have cooling effect from what are called aerosols in the atmosphere associated with particles that also come from the combustion of fossil fuels. That takes us to 1.8 degrees. So for heaven's sake, I wish we'd have more, more honest discourse here. The world is not going to end tomorrow. There's nothing magical about one and a half degrees. But there is lots magical about decarbonizing our energy systems. And how many people right now are cheering that they actually maybe bought an electric bike, maybe bought an electric car two, three, four years ago when they started to take this issue seriously? as they watch the price of gas at 240. Well, it's a bit of I told you so, and it's going to continue down that path. So decarbonization is very simple. It's about transitioning energy systems from fossil fuel burning to non-fossil fuel burning. We've got to keep CO2 out of the atmosphere. And you can do that with forestry because forestry is one of the world's greatest atmospheric cleansers. That is, they suck up carbon dioxide and if done properly, and appropriately, you can use our forests as a sink through proper forest practices. All right, we're talking about the environmental road blockades. They've started again this week. We've seen a lot of arrests this week. We saw a protester injured at one of the blockades. My guest is former BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. He thinks these tactics actually backfire on the environmental movement. Let's see what you think on the open line. James on the line of White Rock. Hi, James, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm a contractor, and I've been stuck behind these blockades on a few different occasions, and there's no other way to get into the North Shore except for go the route that they're blocking, and that's why they do it. They've cost me money, they've cost me time, and I'm looking for more information on the class action lawsuit. But what I want to know from from uh, the, 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 the party leaders, where does he stand on like people like David Suzuki calling for violence to bomb pipelines? Giving, enabling these people to do this, like, shouldn't they like go after the the people that actually have a heard voice for for actually like condoning okay. or? Th- thanks for the call. Let me get Andrew Weaver's thoughts on that. So, David Suzuki, you know, that's a comment that he later apologized for, but he yeah, did say that at one point back. he did walk that back. He did walk back that back. It took a little while, but at one point yeah. he he did he did say that there could be. You know, pipelines could get blown up if something isn't done about climate change. Your thoughts? I, I don't think that was his finest moment, as you might imagine. I don't think uh, someone of his stature should be saying that. I think David Suzuki is very frustrated, and no doubt so. He's been on the front lines of trying to get people to be aware of issues regarding the environment for a very long time. And he's uh, quite elderly now, and he's, you know, looking back and, and, and saying, you know, what is going on with humanity? And so he's frustrated. So I, I get where he's coming from. And because I've been frustrated too, but I don't think that's the appropriate avenue because your caller was right. I mean, what did he do about this? He's trying to fix somebody's whatever in the North shore of Vancouver, who's now annoyed because they can't fix whatever. What if that was an emergency visit? What if somebody yeah. had to go to get, to get cancer treatment in Vancouver and they couldn't make a ferry because of a blockade? And that was their slot to get their chemo. I mean, this is what these people are not thinking through. It's not helpful. Let's go to Ted on the line. And, Ted on the line in Courtney. Hi, Ted. Go ahead. Hi there. Uh, good morning, Mike and Mr. Weaver. I got to say, I'm astonished. I never thought I would agree with absolutely everything the leader of the Green Party had to say. It's, he's absolutely right. This is just ridiculous. I mean, I'm a Métis man myself, and to have mm. a bunch of wealthy, white, urban liberals go on and say that, sorry, Indigenous people, you don't have a right to self-determination because I know better. And to top it off, the, the ringleader of this little circus, Mr. Zane Hack, he's not even a Canadian citizen. Is it, at the very least, this is foreign interference. The guy should be deported. Okay, th- okay thank, thank you for the call. Well, I mean, there is there are divided opinions among Indigenous people, just like there are a range of opinions among everybody else. So there are in, there are indigenous leaders, notably some hereditary chiefs, for example, who oppose the coastal <laughs> gas link pipeline. But there are elected band councils that support a lot of resource development. So how how do you solve that problem, Andrew Weaver? 
Well, this is, uh, you nailed it, Mike, particularly the coastal gas link uh, issue where you have uh, federal government has, has elements of jurisdiction, provincial government has elements of jurisdiction, uh, hereditary leaders from different clans and, and elected uh, Indian Act uh, leaders. What you do is, <laughs> it's, it's about negotiation and listening and bringing people with you. It's not about picking your favorite side and pitting one indigenous group another. This is a very serious issue. That some very, very well, you know, very thoughtful indigenous leaders up in along the coastal gas link are, are dealing with in negotiations with the federal and the provincial governments. Now, I am not one to have ever supported that gas link. There's some irony yeah. here, Mike, too. Yeah. Did you know that in the legislature, the day that British Columbia was passing its LNG enabling legislation? Most of the environmental community had lobbied the Greens, me at the time I was there, and they didn't even know this vote was happening. They were too busy telling the Greens what we needed to do while we were standing up in the legislature 14 times voting against this LNG that they didn't even know was going on. So the irony here is more often than not, I question whether some in our environmental community actually know what they're protesting, because if they care about climate change, that LNG vote was the single biggest event in British Columbia history on climate change, and you didn't even know it was happening. Okay, let's so instead in. we resort to yeah. protesting things that that we're, we're moving on from. Squeeze in one more call, Rob on the line sure. in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. You got thirty seconds here. Go ahead. Okay, I'll be real quick, Mike. Today, first of all, Mr. Weaver, your comment there, uh, revenge of the trailer park boys, embarrassing. You're yeah. only causing provocation. Uh, quickly, uh, I do believe old growth should be protected. I've watched many documentaries, the mycelium and all the underground networks, very, very important. But Mr. Weaver, you also said that people have to take this seriously in terms of buying electric bikes, electric cars. Do your research on that. Look at the mining. It's going to be tenfold increase. And okay, the, we could probably do a whole we could, we could probably do a whole show on that. Andrew Weaver, you have 30 seconds to respond there. Well, I have looked at the mining, and uh, this is often the type of um, comments that are thrown uh, that you, you scrape off the internet, that if you actually do do the research, you realize are, are essentially there only to muddy the waters. doesn't make sense. Think about it. Think about it. It shouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because there's mining happening in everything right. we do. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the changing uh, COVID-19 travel restrictions and vaccine mandates now. Effective June 20th, Canadians who are unvaccinated will be allowed to travel within Canada again aboard planes and trains. No more proof of vaccination required. As of June 20th, the federal government also lifting the vaccine mandate for federal employees. That includes federally regulated transportation sector workers. Now, there are some exceptions to that, though. Vaccine mandates for cruise ships, including the passengers and the crew, will remain in place. So the vaccine mandate being dropped for other tra types of travel, but cruise ships, though, that vaccine mandate still in place. Now, why is that? Well, have a listen to the federal transportation minister here, Omar Al-Gabra. As for cruise ships, vaccination for passengers and crew will remain in place. This decision is based on the unique nature of cruise ship travel, including the fact that passengers are in close contact with each other for an extended periods of time. Okay, that's the federal transportation minister there. The restrictions of uh, vaccine mandate remaining in place for cruise ships. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Professor Ross Klein from Memorial University of Newfoundland. He's an expert on the cruise ship industry. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Professor Klein, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. What do you think of the exemption here for cruise ships, the vaccine mandate remaining in place there? Right thing to do? Um, I think it makes sense because, uh, it, you know, most recently uh, there, there there continued to be uh, incidents of COVID on cruise ships. And I think it's it's prudent because uh, with the vaccine mandate uh, that's been in place, uh, there have been rel some ver relatively large, I mean, you know, three or four percent of passengers uh, with COVID uh, on ships. So, again, I think it's it's reasonable. It's certainly inconvenient for people, but. You know, it's safe for sure. 
Yeah, and you heard the federal transportation minister say there, uh, talk about the unique nature of cruise ship travel. A lot of people are in close contact while they're on board these ships. Do you think that people who are thinking about taking a cruise again, do you think they should be concerned about getting on a cruise ship? Do you think they're safe right now? I think people are relatively safe. Uh, Even before COVID, there were things like norovirus, and certainly there were large influenza outbreaks at certain times of year. I think a cruise ship does pose a health risk, but I think what that means is taking precautions. So I think with the threat of COVID, um, I wouldn't hesitate going on a cruise as long as others can continue to wear a mask, because I think that that provides the protection you need. Um, So, you know, it's not the cruise per se, but I think probably the behavior people engage in uh, when they're on a cruise. Yeah, what kind of safety measures are aboard cruise ships right now to stop COVID and spread of it? Well, there is a requirement. Uh, I think they, they it was lowered down to ninety percent of crew need to be fully vaccinated. Uh, so it's not a hundred percent. And and I think you know there's a continuing testing for COVID. Beyond that. Um, I'm not sure if the cruise industry is doing much more, uh, certainly responding appropriately when when there are incidents and there is quarantining on board ships. But uh, I'm not sure if there's much more they are doing, nor I'm not sure whether there's much more they can do. Yeah, I mean, is it difficult Like, if you go on a cruise and people maybe want to stay socially distanced? I mean, that's kind of a tough tough order on a cruise ship, is it not? I mean, is it difficult to stay social di- socially distanced on a cruise ship? Um, well, I think, you know, over meals, certainly that, that could be challenging. But I, I think generally speaking, if you spend time on, out, on decks outdoors, if you choose when you go to ports uh, to stay away from crowds of people, um, I think you can maintain a, certainly a degree of social distance and, uh, and a degree of security. I think it's just approaching it a little bit differently. Um, I think at the same time, it's being aware that the cruise ships themselves are they're under pressure to make more money, so they're they're going to be changing their business model. So um, I think it will be more pressure to spend more money on board ships, and there will be more uh, trying to capture people. So I think keeping social distance may also be an economic benefit to people. Speaking to Professor Ross Klein, Memorial University of Newfoundland, about the cruise ship industry. So would you hesitate to go on a cruise ship right now if you had an opportunity yourself? I, I wouldn't hesitate to go on, but I, but I would uh, I, I would be sure to mask up as much as possible, um, and uh, you know t- take the common precautions I would any, anywhere I would go. Um, you know, again, I, th- I think there's still a risk on a cruise ship, not a uh, not a certainty that you're going to get ill, but I think that there's a risk, and uh, I think just taking proper precautions, one can av- avoid most of that. Yeah, you touched briefly on what the protocol for on board. Like, let's say you you're on board a cruise ship and suddenly someone gets sick, they contract COVID. What do they do with that person? Does that person have to quarantine in their room or something? Uh, yeah, they would have uh, facilities yeah. on board to quarantine passengers who have tested positive for COVID. Um, and when they reach a port and people are te- are, are positive, uh, they would be shifted to a hotel and quarantined. Um, so you know that that sort of tended to as long as the number of people who are affected doesn't go beyond the space they have for quarantine. But at, at, at this point, um, you know, there's certainly no, been no crises. There have been some ships with, uh, you know, 50 to 100 people with COVID, but again, nothing reaching crisis proportions. I think a lot of people are happy to see some of these restrictions and mandates being wound down at this point. Everyone wants to get back to normal everyone wants to get back to traveling again do you think it's reasonable though at this point to allow cruise ships to enter into canadian ports again there's lots of cruise ships heading to vancouver and victoria obviously there is a risk but do you think it's a a warranted that we you know we allow the industry to start up again now yeah I, I think it's per- perfectly reasonable. I think the main thing is that the government and the, that the local authorities uh, kind of maintain an awareness and a surveillance of what's happening. So if there uh, is, uh, let's say, an increase of COVID being brought on board, brought, brought, being brought ashore, uh, 
by cruise ship passengers that there be a quick response. But I think I don't see any. I, I think the the approach is certainly reasonable, and I and there's no reason uh, to be any more restrictive. Yeah, cruising is popular. Certainly, it's big business here in British Columbia. A lot of people want to get back on board a cruise ship and go on another effective, a cost-effective vacation. For a lot of people, it's a, an affordable option. If people listening right now, if they were thinking of going cruising again, maybe this summer or in the fall, do you have any recommendations for them to stay safe while they're on board? Well, I, I would uh, keep uh, attuned to what's happening with regard to whether it be COVID or, or other illnesses and be aware of risks and not, not necessarily uh, avoid travel. But when one's traveling, be sure to be uh, uh, to be sensible and to take precautions as they as one can. Uh, and I think that's the main thing. That's I think when everyone travels, uh, it's kind of a, a good practice. Right. You're, you're a close follower and analyst of this industry. Do you think there's other things they should be doing right now to make it safer, to restore their passenger confidence that it's safe to get on a cruise ship now? Uh, at, at this point, I can't think of anything. I think they're uh, they're they're scrambling so much to to get passengers. They're they're getting they're getting their ships back on online, but they're they're certainly not filling their ships, which becomes an economic pressure. Um, but you know, I think it's the, the industry is hard pressed these days, and I think as consumers, we may see some decent deals coming as they try to fill the ships. But there are no there are no outstanding issues with regard to to health per se. Thanks for coming on with your analysis on it today. I appreciate it. Great chatting with you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about an amazing adventure and an incredible accomplishment. My guest is Jessica Mullins. Jessica is a competitive rower from Vancouver who rowed across the Atlantic Ocean. Yes, you heard that right. She rowed across the Atlantic, part of a four-person team who made the trip it was part of the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. They raised money for charity as part of the effort. And I'm pleased to welcome her to the show. Jessica, thanks very much for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Thanks for being here. So I've been reading about this incredible feat you accomplished. Congratulations. Uh, um, it's amazing to read about what you did here. Let's, let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved with this? Um, I actually watched a documentary about three years ago. It's called Losing Sight of Shore. Um, and I'd already known about the challenge lightly. But when I watched this program, which is about uh, some amazing women that crossed the Pacific, um, I was just completely hooked. So I knew that this is something that I wanted to do, that I wanted to cross an ocean. So, yeah, I put a team together and started recruiting around three years ago. Um, and then we ended up with an international team. So, yeah, some of us, one was from Germany, one from uh, from England, one was based in Ireland, and myself here in, in Vancouver. Wow. So, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Now, you started from Spain, right? Yeah, the Canary Islands, straight over to Antigua. So, yeah, no stopping. Okay, so from Spain to the Caribbean, how long did it take you to make that crossing? Uh, so it's 3,000 nautical miles, which is about... 5,000 kilometers. So, yeah, it took us 42 days, four hours, and 54 minutes, which uh -huh. actually, yeah, amazing. And it actually, uh, we became the world first for our dynamic. So, we had three women and one man, and that's never happened. No one's ever rode any ocean with that dynamic. Well, that's, that's awesome. Congratulations on that. Now, for people who are trying to put their heads around this, first of all, let's talk about the boat that you were in. Like, was it like this must be like a specially designed rowboat, I guess, right? Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's two meter by uh, sorry, eight meter by two meter ocean rowing boats, which are built by a company called Rannick. So there aren't many of these boats in the world, and it's pretty tiny for four people. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, four people together in that little space for 42 days. Okay, that's got to be kind of interesting. How did that go? Yeah, it was cozy. <laughs> I bet. Um, yeah, you know, and there's no kitchen and there's no bathroom. So it is so oh. basic. It's so basic. And, you know, you've got a bucket to you to sort out your needs. And you have a jet boil just to boil up some water to heat up your dehydrated food. And 
it's extremely cosy um and there's only there's only really enough room for one person to be sleeping in each cabin you can squeeze two uh so we always had two people rowing and two people sleeping at the same time okay jessica what was it like out there like you know were you scared at times and when you're in the middle of the ocean that's got to be a little hairy and scary it is um and I, I skipped the, the crossing, and I think there's an element of everybody will feel, feel fear, but I think it's about whether or not you display it or not. And I think maybe as being uh, the skipper of the vessel, I kind of felt that that's something that I couldn't really show very much. But when I stepped off land, I definitely reflected on it. At night, it's particularly with there's no, if there's no moon, then it's pitch black and and you just don't know if that next wave is going to be the one that's going to capsize you. So, but you just have to ignore it. I think. <laughs> yeah, boy, oh boy, did you get into any rough weather? Yeah, yeah, you do experience rough weather. I think you'd be very lucky if you experienced uh, just calm seas the whole the whole way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we we had quite a few issues really. Like our auto helm would would um, would break quite often. Our boat would flip itself, um, you know, one eighty degrees. And so we would have to battle through um, through through the wind and waves to try and get us back on course. Wow. Uh, very stressful. Wow. Speaking to Jessica Mullins, she's a Vancouver-based competitive rower, and her amazing 42 days to cross the Atlantic Ocean in a rowboat, four-person team. So when you were out there and you're going through some scary experiences like that, like that's got to be a mental challenge as well as a physical challenge, I imagine. Yeah, I think that this so this row is is classed as um, the toughest toughest row in the world, um, and it is predominantly a mental health challenge. It is very physical, but they often say that it's you know ninety percent um, mental health, uh, and I would probably agree with that. But everybody everybody is different. Um, having to row for two hours, sleep for an hour and a half, you've got about a, half an hour to do some chores, and then back on the oars. And you do that consistently. Um, oh. And I, I don't know about you, but I like my sleep. So <laughs> very, I think that's part of the mental health challenge as well, is that you have to really find, dig deep, find the courage to get back out on deck and do your thing. What did you see out there? Did you see any wildlife or whales, anything like that? Yeah, we did. We saw quite a few minky whales, actually, which, which I was really surprised at. Um, so I remember one evening it was, moonlight and the sun had just gone down and moonlight was out and we had a minky whale that stayed with us uh for hours uh, and it was just swimming next to our boat you know a couple meters away so we feel really lucky um but lots of other wildlife like portuguese man of war um loads of dolphins you know you see you see so much out there right now what happens are you guys out there totally alone in this boat are there other vessels around like you have an escort vessel with you or anything to help you if you get in trouble there technically is a support yacht but we we didn't see them the whole time so so this is part of a fleet that that do it each year um so there are other vessels that we didn't see we didn't see anybody but we do see the odd tanker um but you are alone so if there is it is unassisted um so yeah we didn't see anybody you have to be completely self-sufficient you can't right. even take an apple off another boat you know you have to be self-sufficient right and i've got you you must have a way to call for help though right like you got satellite communications on there or? yeah we had a satellite yeah. phone okay. um so, so yeah you know we're constantly keeping tabs um with a safety officer having a chat with them every day and when we do have an incident then feeding back that information to them but it's mostly when it's happened you know you've resolved it and then you're giving them a call to update them okay and what was it like physically on your on your body to go through something like that you like lose lose weight during during an experience yeah. like that yeah yeah, a huge amount of weight. Well, for me, uh, anyway, I lost 10 kilos. And I, I know my uh, my teammate, Joe, he lost 20 kilos. And in 42 days, that's a lot to lose. Um, there's a bit of a repercussion of that. So a, a lot of extreme fatigue. But when I got off and stepped onto land, that's really when it it hits you. So I was pr- not feeling very well when I, when I got off. So it takes a bit of time to recover. Uh, you lose a lot of your fat and your your muscle, and you just become extremely lean. 
Um, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. And I know you guys were raising money for charity, right, For by doing this. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we wanted to raise awareness of uh, three chosen charities, and one of which um, is based here in Vancouver, so Covenant House. Um, wow. so, so, yeah, they support the, the homeless youth here, which is just so valuable, um, and I couldn't have chosen a better charity. So that's all still ongoing, uh, and it's just really important that we raise, yeah, raise awareness uh, about all the good work that they do. Okay. Well, Jessica, that's incredible. What, what's next for you now? Are you going to row across the Pacific Ocean next? Oh, funny you should say that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking so, but I've told myself I'm going to be kind to myself and not not sort of make a decision this year. And towards the end of the year, I'm going to see where things lie. All right. Well, congratulations on this accomplishment. That's amazing. I, it was great to talk to you and hear your story. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you, Mike.